0: Open your bibles with me. All right. Open your bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. I have a number of families and folks on vacation this week, my own included. I I shared with some that I forgot what it was to prepare a sermon in a quiet home. And wow, what a blessing it was and it was once again a blessing to be gathered this morning with a people that have come together to hear the word and for the sake of the gospel In truth, saints, we're a collection of beggars that are showing other beggars where they might find food, good food. And we preach, as the Puritan Richard Baxter famously said, as a dying man to dying men, so as to never preach again. And should this be your last sermon to digest, that you would be well satisfied and the preacher quite content. Our focus at HHBC is singularly. It is dogmatically, it is faithfully, and it is stubbornly on the Gospel. The message that Jesus Christ left Heaven's throne, that He took on human flesh, that He lived a perfect sinless life, that He was crucified on a Roman cross, that He died, and three days later He rose again, defeating death and hell, paying our sin debt, standing as our substitute, and reconciling us to a God that we had been alienated from by our sin. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ saves sinners, of whom I am chief. That's the gospel. And one of the reasons for our single-mindedness here at this church is summarized by the great J.C. Ryle, when he wrote, quote, "...since Satan cannot destroy the gospel..." He has too often neutralized its usefulness by addition, subtraction, or substitution. End quote. Well, lest we do Satan's work for him, first off, what do we see? That we don't add to the gospel. Well, today in modern evangelicalism, everything somehow winds up being labeled as a gospel issue, doesn't it? Every social justice cause you can think of is labeled as essential to the gospel. Somehow, voting rights are a gospel issue. Income redistribution is a gospel issue. Take a woke buzzword of choice and rest assured that evangelicalism is adding it to the gospel as we speak. No, the gospel is the gospel. That's it. We do not add to it. We don't add any works to it, noble or otherwise. We do not add to the gospel. Nor do we subtract from the gospel as JC Ryle said we leave nothing out we do not skirt around rough edges we don't shy away from hard doctrines that offend congregants expository preaching is one surefire way to make sure that we are never subtracting from the gospel we don't skip a single word and no topic can be ignored if Jesus speaks of hell in the next verse we shall teach on hell If Peter writes of election unto salvation, then we shall teach on election unto salvation. I have no right to subtract from the gospel. I have no right to add to or to subtract from the words herein. J.C. Ryle says Satan attempts to add and to subtract from the gospel, but to do what else? To make a substitute for the gospel. Now this gets tricky, doesn't it? Ryle is driving at idolatry here. In fact, it seems logical that addition and subtraction actually roll into the substitution, doesn't it? Because if we add to it or we subtract from it, we have an effect what? We've replaced it. We've removed the biblical gospel. We've replaced it with a gospel that's more to our liking. Perhaps one that's concerned with our pet causes as much as we are. Or aligns with our personal theology, regardless of what the Bible says. We've made a substitute We prostitute out the precious pearl of the gospel for a Frankenstein creation. And that's idolatry. The gospel is the gospel. Paul tells the Corinthians, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. And everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are constantly pulling at that singular truth in our life. And the most mature saints among us cry out to be reoriented daily to this truth. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it and don't substitute it. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we began a beautifully horrific tale. We have launched into the telling of the execution of John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, being forever silenced by the violence that resides in the hearts of men. Or as indeed we will see, Today in the hearts of women as well. It is a horrific tale because sin is horrific. The wages of sin are horrific. Any loss of life is horrific. But it is laced in beauty as God's sovereign plan reigns over it all. John was made for this purpose. Some of those we are allowed to see as as we'll see later on. Herod's key role in the days of Jesus' life at the end. And some we may never see or know. It is often that way with tragedy. Yet we can be confident that even as the executioner's blade fell, that God was glorified in his death. And we were introduced last week to some of the main players in this saga of seduction and murder. We met Herod, fully known as Herod Antipas, one of the surviving sons of Herod the Great. And of course, Herod had every character flaw that his father had. He was power hungry, he was paranoid, he was a political schemer and a sexual deviant. but he never amassed the power or prestige of his father, but he was every bit as wicked. And Herod was a man deeply conflicted. He was deeply conflicted. He knew that what he did to John was wrong. His conscience plagued him. And when you do not know Christ, there is no relief to a guilty conscience. There's nowhere to flee. Herod could not let John go free, lest he suffer the wrath of Herodias. And yet, he couldn't bring himself to kill him. He was a tortured soul. And let us not forget the femme fatale of our tragedy, of course, Herod's niece, Herodias, of whom Herod was incestuously involved, illegitimately divorcing the daughter of King Eratas. We shall call Herodias the mistress of Tiberius. She was ambitious, She was cunning, she was poisonous, she was manipulative, and she was a political animal. And given that King Eratos tried to have Herod killed for jilting his daughter by divorcing her, one can only assume that Herodias was also quite beautiful as well for Herod to go through such a hurricane of drama. There was very political benefit to Herod having her. In fact, she was a liability to his own life. So there really is only other one alternative by the math that she possessed incredible beauty. Second only perhaps to Jezebel in the Old Testament, do we see a woman with such wrath and such hatred toward another human being as Herodias had for John the Baptist. John the Baptist spoke plainly, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And That did not go over well. And we know from the verb tense here that John was sharing this both in public and in private. John was a bull. He was a bull. And from what we know of his path in life through the wilderness times, he probably did not really know the meaning of tact and poise. And when you're a trailblazer, trailblazer, when you're sent to level the path for Messiah to come, you're no shrinking violet. And every fallen heart, every hound of hell wants a piece of you. But John was a man set with his jaw like flint, preparing the way. He did not succumb to the trap of being a man-pleaser. His mission would have been impossible if his affections were split, if his gaze were able to be drawn. No, John was a steely-eyed missile man right to the end. And Today we're going to see that end. The voice will finally meet the violence in the culmination of this epic drama. So with that, let's begin. Mark six nineteen through 29. Now Herodias was holding a grudge against him and was wanting to put him to death and was not able. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he was keeping him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his great men and military commanders and leading men of Galilee And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to her, to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and asked and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist and immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in prison, and brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard this, they came in and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words are indeed a beautiful tragedy. But Lord, we know that we are watching your sovereign hand at work in this story, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illumine this text, teach us what you would have us to know. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, most people, I suspect, in their lives have had some experience with the awful scourge of cancer, and most have had either a friend or a loved one who has either battled it, perhaps even succumbing to it. Now, as a pathologist, any pathologist will tell you: the earlier a cancer is caught, the better, even in its precancerous stages. Once it's grown too large or goes unaddressed, it will eventually consume a body. And the words that were spoken publicly and privately by John the Baptist that were condemning this incestuous and adulterous relationship between Herod and and his niece Herodias, these were injections John was making into the mind and the heart of Herodias. And an injection of something is meant to help Yet in this case, it depends on what your mind and your heart do with it. If it accepts it, if the scathing rebuke of John was received, it could be a life-saving injection. But if the mind and the heart reject it, it will turn cancerous. Indeed, it will be deadly. This injection of truth into the heart of Herodias would spend the entire year that John was in prison, and indeed even before that, metastasizing and growing into a cancerous grudge that had completely consumed her. One commentator opines, quote, Herodias never let up on this fury of hers toward the Baptist, for daring to denounce her private relation with Herod, but waited her time for revenge. Close quote. And as we begin with verse 19, we'll see that this is exactly what Herodias has succumbed to. The injection of truth that John the Baptist gave her had not cured her, but had grown cancerous. And we find Herodias at this point being completely consumed. So beginning with verse 19, let's begin with verse 19. Now Herodias was holding a grudge against him and was wanting to put him to death. And was not able. Well, at this point, John the Baptist is being held in Herod's palace. And this palace was up on a very imposing mountain. I've actually visited this site. It's, it's overlooking the Dead Sea, and the view is truly one to behold. At one end was the palace, and at the other end was the prison, just as we'll see in Scripture. And the name of this palace was Machaerus. Which is quite ironic because translated in the Arabic, this means sword. And indeed, we will see that the sword will be wielded in great wickedness in this place against the second greatest man to ever be born. And it says, now Herodias was holding a grudge against him. And some translations say that she was nursing a grudge against him. And I think that captures the heart of it much better. We see this in the imperfect tense. Which you're getting used to hearing, meaning that she was continually, she was constantly consumed with this hatred for John. And she was nursing this grudge against him. And her inner grudge had become an open sore. It was a metastasized cancer. But here's a little extra goody on the end of this imperfect tense. It is an open imperfect tense. Which tells us to prepare for something to happen Because of this hatred, it's not closed, it's open. Meaning she's not mulling it, mulling it over, consumed by it, kind of like Herod was with his fear of John. She is watching and waiting, biding her time, waiting to strike. It is open. She aims to weaponize her hatred. The reminder of what John had done. What did he do? He called her out on her sin. Well, don't expect a welcoming party when this has to be done. When people are worshipers of self, they get very angry when you don't share in that worship. What exactly now is this hatred metastasized into? It says, and was wanting to put him to death. Well, go big or go home, I guess. Now, we could camp all day on the fallenness of the heart that harbors such a response. Yet the counsel and the rebuke of John the Baptist was good medicine. It could have saved her. Yet the fallen man despises the very thing that will save him. He holds it in contempt. It has always been so. The things of God are foolishness to them. They held the very spirit and the very power and the very voice of Elijah in their dungeon. And the heart of the wicked man, the delusion and the rebellion that accompanies this willing sin will kill that voice. Herodias wanted John the Baptist dead. He had been down in this dungeon for a year. And you can almost feel in the text Herodias up above his head just, just brooding and stewing this entire time. Like a coiled viper waiting to strike. And while we have many players in this saga, we are focusing on Herodias so much. Because she's the primary provocateur of this story. Without her, none of this happens. She's the driver. But the end of verse 19 shows that there is a restraint in place. It says that she was not able. Well, there the plot thickens, doesn't it? Verse 20, verse 20. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he was keeping him safe. Stop there. Now, this is fascinating. Didn't we already see Herod living in fear of John last week during our flashback? Herod was afraid of John when he had him killed, and he's afraid of John while he's alive. Once again, this fear in the imperfect tense. It was constant. What a way to live. It's as if the very moment that John the Baptist became a guest at Casa de Dungeon, he lived rent-free in everyone's head walking above him just sitting down there. God has flipped the roles on their head. It's not the prisoner who fears the king now, it's the king who fears the prisoner. And isn't that just like God? He was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. Now we mustn't skip over how revealing this is of Herod, and what it tells us about the capacities of the lost. What does it mean first that Herod knew John was righteous? What does that mean? That's a religious word, no? Yes. But not in the Christian sense that we would use it. To be righteous, meaning to be in a right standing before God. Here Herod is speaking to John's character. He's seen an excellence of spirit in him. They're seeing a conviction in him. He's seeing that John is different. He's seeing that John is uncompromising. Lost people are not mindless automatons. They know character when they see it. They know integrity when they see it. They know good morals and a person of conviction when they see it. Absolutely. Now, do they know it in a saving and in a salvific type of way? No. Do they connect the source to the Savior? Do they connect the character to the Christ? No. But they recognize it. They recognize it. And because Herod recognizes this in John, for additional reasons we're going to cover here in the next verse, he aims to keep John safe. Now, that's quite funny. The safest place that John can think of to keep him from this venomous mistress of Tiberius was a prison cell in his own palace where he could continually watch over him. If you leave him out there on his own, wandering around the wilderness, Herodias would very likely have the means to have him killed and no one would be the wiser. The safest place for John was a prison cell. And what are the telling reasons Herod wanted him safe? He recognized his character, his integrity, that he was a man of God. Even the lost respect that. But we get another tidbit of insight here in the last part of verse 20. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Now this tells us a great deal. One, it tells us that John the Baptist was likely a very powerful speaker. I can only imagine But more than that, we see a superficial desire by Herod to be titillated. When I read this, I recognized this type of person right away. Share your faith often enough and you will encounter this type of person. They are intellectually fascinated with what you have to say. It's mental stimulation for them. They're engrossed in what you're saying. And you're sitting here thinking, well, great, man. maybe God's doing something here. But they just love the academic exercise, like the Greeks at the synagogue in Athens with Paul. They love to hear different philosophies. Jesus is amazing and fascinating to them. The Christian apologetic is wonderfully stimulating to them. I've had multi-hour conversations with people, plumbing the depths of Christian thought until I finally realized that this person is a tourist. He's touring my brain. He's looking at all the stuff, like walking through a zoo or a museum. That's what's going on with Herod here. And we need to understand this part of people. As we said last week, every person you know is religious. Every person, everyone you know is hardwired for worship. So don't be surprised when people like to listen to things about it. Think about Paul with Festus and Agrippa. Same thing. Another perfect example. Get him in there. Bring in Paul again. He's fascinating to listen to, right? Jesus' ministry, and no doubt John the Baptist's ministry, was constantly full of gawkers, onlookers, curiosity seekers, intellectuals, you name it. And Herod is in that camp. He enjoyed listening to John. We have to make sense of that. I've had lost people praise a sermon. Same thing. Exact same thing. But as we'll see, yes, Herod was a wicked man, but more than wicked, he was weak. He was tepid. He was a vacillator. He was a spineless politician who's afraid of his own wife, as we will see. And that's what caused him to be, as verse 20 says, perplexed, perplexed. And we said last week that Herod was a man torn, that he was a man that was divided in his mind. On one side, he's he's hearing this incredible preaching of John the Baptist, The conviction, the power, the the cunning. But he only desired to please. As we'll see, being in a conflicted state is in fact a grace. To be conflicted is a grace. It's a blessing. To be conflicted means that part of your conscience remains flesh. To have no conviction, to have no confliction whatsoever... It's as the scripture says, to be given over to a debased mind. Every sin calluses a mind, a heart, a conscience, just a little bit more. Every resistance to the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a step down the ladder. Every gospel message heard and rejected is another piece of evidence at our final sentence. Herod is going to do just that. This entire saga has been born and bred because of Herod's illicit desire for this woman, his own niece. Sin has wrought this entire scene we are going to witness. It brings death. It haunts a conscience. And we will see in high definition one of the cardinal lies that surrounds sin, that we can somehow contain the effects of sin to ourselves. The man that tells himself that the sin between him and his computer screen can be contained to himself. That no one else is being hurt. I can contain this sin to myself. That's a lie. The heartache, the pain, the sin that numerous individuals had to be committed against to bring that image to your screen. We dare to dream that sin is contained to ourselves. Many people are hurt by what we think is a private sin. In truth, there's no such thing. There is nothing done in secret that will not be proclaimed from the rooftops. Herod's sin, Herodias's sin, would reverberate throughout their lives and would reverberate through history. We're talking about them today. And yet Herod just thought, I love this beautiful woman. She loves me. It's mutual. We're not hurting anyone. Behind every sin is a lie. Behind every sin is a lie. Look at a given sin and follow the path of it. And somewhere along the way from germination to execution, that person believed a lie. The foundation of sin, of lies, of idolatry. Hundreds of conscious decisions, layer upon layer, has built a foundation that gives us the scene we're about to witness. And like a Shakespearean play, we now go to the great hall of Herod Antipas in verse 21. As if Mark is kind of raising the curtain on a play about to begin. We're setting our stage here, verse 21. And a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his great men and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And a strategic day came, it says. Well, strategic for whom? For Herodias. This tells us something of her scheming, of her planning, and indeed it is diabolical. She's strategic. This is all to plan. And if we just look on the surface, we'll just see that it's a birthday party. What's so opportune about that? I go to lots of birthday parties. Well, not like these ones, you don't. This was not a Jewish celebration event. This was a Roman party event. Birthdays of this type were Las Vegas on steroids. Complete drunkenness. They would eat so much that they would go make themselves vomit so that they could come back to eat more. It was a day of complete revelry. No inhibitions. People would engage in orgies and sexual deviance right in the party hall. There were no rules at a Roman birthday party, especially one for a dignitary such as Herod. And we'll see from the text that the who's who of the region are there. The entire power structure of Galilee and the region are there. Military, businessmen, you name it. If you were top dog, you were at this party. Exclusively men were invited to this time. Over the top debauchery. But the scandal on this day is going to take a turn for the truly perverse. All the Herodias... All that Herodias had been scheming is going to come to light. And what that light is going to show is that a mind and a heart that have been consumed by hatred, that have been given over to depravity, will do anything to satisfy their need, even as we will see at the expense of their own daughter. Verse 22, verse 22. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod. And his dinner guests stop there. Well, if you recall our opener in our sermon this morning, time to put our money where our mouth is. We talked about not subtracting from the word of God, not going around difficult topics or subjects. And as an expository congregation, we are captive to teaching the text. Well, this is one of those verses that most pastors would probably just rather skip. Yet here it is, and there's much for us to learn from it. So as unseemly as it is, it's vital to understanding and to application. We have a new entrant to the stage here in our play. And in this case, it really is something of a stage. We have the daughter of Herodias come on the scene. Now this would be Herod's stepdaughter. While Mark does not give us her name, if we examine the writings of Josephus, we're told that her name is Salome or Salome. That name might ring a bell to you because we see this name elsewhere in Scripture. Salome also being the name of James and John's mother. You recall the one who was asking Jesus that her own boys could be seated at his right hand in his kingdom. That was also Salome, but definitely not to be confused with each other. Now we know a few things about Salome. We know that she was between 12 and 14 years old. And when Antipas and Herodias were later exiled to Gaul, which is modern-day France, Salome joined them as well. Now, it would not have been normal for a 12-year-old girl to be prepared to dance for such an occasion. Now, certainly women would come in and dance, but not women of rank or of structure or of polite society. This was basically strip-teasing, is what it was. It was a profession in that day, and yet Salome, being ready for this, tells us a great deal about the planning behind the scenes. It says that she came in and danced. Now, there's a debate amongst theologians and scholars about the exact nature of this dance, but the consensus leans heavily toward this being a highly erotic dance, which was very normal for the time. And at this point, it seems to indicate that they were essentially at a completely debased level of partying. They were in pure drunkenness. Anything goes And Herodias calls for his stepdaughter. And lo and behold, there she is. Yes, this is just as bad as it sounds. There's no way around it. Not only was the mother willing to essentially prostitute her daughter out to the wicked gaze of drunken men, but we know that Herod actually called for Salome. It's more like, but we don't know whether or not Herod actually called for Salome, excuse me, but that Herodias was watching the progression of the party. Women were not allowed to recline at the table, but she would have been back in the background watching, waiting for everything to hit a drunken low and then send in the girl. Pure wickedness. Now, we don't know the state of Salome at the time. Was she a a willing seductress? Was she just trying to please her mother? Or was she completely innocent? We don't know. But at her age, she should have had at least some idea. This is just as wicked as it sounds. And Mark records that Salome pleased Herod and his dinner guests. This is, I apologize, speaking of sexual arousal and any in everything that accompanies that arousal. It is just that bad. And there behind the scenes stands Herodias, fully willing to do this to her daughter. Sadly, her hatred for John exceeds her love for her daughter. And now we have this very unusual event at the climax of entertainment. This is not a professional striptease, all the guests. We're eminently pleased and the wine is flowing and the atmosphere is highly sexually charged. The last part of verse 22. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Well, the word for ask here is in what's called the aorist imperative. I know that's a new one for us to hear, which means ask me right now. In this moment, don't delay. I'm so very pleased with you. I will give you whatever you want. Right then and there, Herodias knew the trap had worked. You can just see a Hollywood depiction of kind of Herodias behind the curtain, just ghoulishly smiling as she hears Herod plunge headfirst Into her net. And by the way, it's not only John that she hates more than her daughter that she loves, but what kind of love would you have for your husband that you would do this to him? At the risk of being facetious, knowing what we know about Herod and his family dynasty, she actually fits in quite well, I suppose. But it's almost as if Herod fears Salome doesn't believe him. He doesn't believe him, or he wants to make more of a splash by making an oath. So watch this, verse 23, verse 23, and he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. There's a lot to see here. One that Herod swore to her, he made an oath, not just any oath, but a public oath in front of every power broker in the city. Well, now he's really on the hook. But what does it really mean that Herod has offered? What is he offer here? He says, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Well, in truth, this is nonsense. Herod is just showing off. Why? Because Herod doesn't have a kingdom. He's not a king. Everything that Herod possessed was at the pleasure of Rome. There was nothing of his own that he really even had to give. He's showing off for his buddies. That's what's happening. This was Herod's delusion of grandeur on display. You know, his father, Herod the Great, had always been more powerful than he. And Antipas compensated for that wherever he could. But nevertheless, Herod has now opened his big mouth. And the combination of wine and of sexual arousal is about to put Herod into a box that he cannot escape. Boy, that will preach, as they say. Herod is now bound. He's bound. He could have just kept it as we saw in verse 22 saying, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. But he had to double down. He had to swear an oath in his pride. Now he is well and truly stuck. Now how does Salome respond? She doesn't. Verse 24, we'll see that she goes running back to her puppet master. Verse 24. Verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Now, the fact that Salome was not ready with the answer when Herod asked tells us likely that she's not a full-on co-conspirator in this drama. She did have to go back and ask her mother what she wanted. And the curtain goes back on the entire setup. Give me the head of John the Baptist. I don't just want him dead. I don't just want you to tell me that you killed him for me. I want to see it. I want to touch it. I want to hold his head in my hands. That's what she's saying. And so Salome has her marching orders. And she rushes back in, hopefully in time, for the wine to not wear off. And what does she say? Verse 25. Verse 25. And immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter Well, we see first Mark's very fitting word immediately been a while since we saw that one but this was a girl on a mission she hurried back in with all intensity and no doubt had the attention of every man reclining at that table saying I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter well why at once why at once This is the urging of Herodias, no doubt. She knew Herod had protected John for a year at this point. Of course she knew. And she surmised that Herod might even try to pull a fast one. There's no honor amongst thieves, I guess. Who doesn't know? Who knew she doesn't trust the man who would steal his own half-brother's wife? And indeed... Indeed, Herod has no reason to be trusted. So she wants it done right here, right now. No chance to back out or pull a sleight of hand or have John make a miraculous escape while awaiting execution. Nope, right now, head on platter. This will be a party you will never forget. And my bet is that Herod sobered up in an instant. He feared John. He liked John. He knew he was a holy man. But like Pontius Pilate, I'm not his follower, but I don't want anything to do with his death. But he's stuck. One person quipped that if if they were Herod here, they would have told Salome that unfortunately the head of John the Baptist is not in the half of the kingdom I said I would give you. That would have been smart, but no. Verse 26, verse 26. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths, And because of his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. Well, what's happened? Did our beloved Herod just discover a noble side? Is he suddenly bound by his integrity? Not a chance. This is pure pride, pure and simple. Every who's who is watching. And you have made an oath, which in this day is something, in that day and age is something you did not break. You wouldn't have to behead John here but you care too much what people think. You care too much about losing face in front of your friends. You could have at that moment splashed some cold water on your face, stood up, apologized that the wine was speaking too much for you. Please ask for something else. But I cannot kill an innocent man. He still could have done that. But there was, there was still a way out. Even after a hundred steps had been taken in sin after sin after sin to get them to this point, Herod could have still humbled himself and stopped this. Let that be an excellent reminder for us as believers as well. When faced with such challenges, with trials and temptations, Scripture always, always promises us a way out. We will never be tempted with more than we can bear. We always have a way of escape. Always. Herod still... Has a way of escape. But he chose not to take it. It says in our text that Herod was very sorry. The English is no good here. The word here is Paralupus. This is a wave of grief. This is portraying being surrounded by. Or being engulfed in grief. Overwhelmed beyond measure. Rest assured that Herod was quite sober at this point. He could have done the right thing but he layers on yet another sin. Verse 27 and 28, I'll read them as one. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. Well, ancient Roman historian Cassius Dio tells us that When the head of Cicero was brought to Mark Antony's wife, Fulvia, she pulled out his tongue and repeatedly stabbed it with her hairpin. And her violent assault on his tongue was intended as a poetic act of final vengeance against Cicero because he had spoken so harshly of her husband, Mark Antony. And while it's not in canon scripture, early church father Jerome wrote that Herodias similarly mutilated the severed head of John the Baptist. I would have little doubt that that is true given what we have come to learn about the mistress of Tiberius. MacArthur writes, quote, Presumably with one deft stroke of the executioner's blade, John the Baptist entered into his glorious eternal rest to receive his full reward for uncompromising faithfulness to God. He was not only the greatest and last of the Old Testament prophets, he was also the first martyr for Jesus Christ. His entire life pointed to the coming Messiah. Even in death, he remained faithful to his God-given task." Close quote. finally, verse 29. And when his disciples heard this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. We will see as well in Matthew's account that the disciples went and reported this to Jesus. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. Sin hardens a heart. Every sin is a layer of callous. And Herod has made a hundred steps to get where he was today. To order the killing of the second greatest man to ever live. To be the one to order the execution of the first martyr of Jesus Christ in his word. Saints, the next time we will see Herod in the Gospels, he will be mocking Jesus to his face. The man who had an audience with the spirit and the power and the voice of Elijah. The king who was able to hear the most powerful preacher cry out to him to repent. He might have found him fascinating, but he did not listen. And so he is given over to a debased and to a depraved mind. And every step the heart grows harder and the conscience more seared to the point that the king of kings will stand in Herod's court in only a very short while from now, and he will mock him and laugh at him. He is a man truly without excuse. And indeed, we are a people who bear the same accountability. The Lord has put his will and his gospel into the words of this book. And when the scripture speaks, God speaks. And we are accountable for the light it shines in our life. And we will be held to account for the message we heard at Harrison Hills Baptist Church on August 15th, 2021. You were foreordained to be here, to hear this message, to respond to it. And lest we be like Herod, as the writers of Hebrews said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. To listen, to respond in repentance and faith, and he will make a seared conscience flesh. He will make a sin stained garment white. He makes all things new. He makes all things new. John the Baptist cried out the same message, and it hasn't changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that your message has not changed, that you are unchanging, that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. And Lord, just as Herod stood there with the light before them, before him and chose not to listen, callousing his heart. Lord, we know that we can be guilty of the same. And Lord, let it not be named among us that we were not sensitive to your word that we were not sensitive to not grieve the Holy Spirit in our life as he brings about our sanctification, working in us your good pleasure. Heavenly Father, we ask that the story of the second greatest man to ever live and his end would be permanently sealed in our hearts as we are called upon as well to be bold in the days and the years to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.